Oh, good evening. One of the great signs of uh, meditation in our culture, you know, it's all the paraphernalia, and one is this uh, necklace, this bone-shaped necklace, and on it it's written, sit, stay, heal. <laughs> so here we are. And I wanted to um, start in tonight a bit where we left our hero, the Buddha, under the Bodhi tree last night. And um, I was reflecting on the myth, you know, of, of the Buddha and, you know, battling Mara and uh, at the end, you know, the Mara is kind of, the forces are demolished and scattered and the elephant, this monster elephant that Mara's riding is down on his knees and, you know, he's been vanquished basically, the Buddha vanquished him. And, and Mara's this bad guy. So I was reflecting on this archetypal casting of this battle, okay, and how um, this was not a myth that came out of the minds of uh, Buddhist nuns and wise women through the ages. This is a male myth, you know, battling Mara, a bad guy. Then the inquiry really of uh, what happens, you know, when we start sensing, okay, so the forces of Mara are these energies inside us and we're battling them. And what really happens when we frame it that way? When there's this bad energy, when it's good against evil, when it's been casted that way, what really happens? Uh, so it, it's an interesting thing because, you know, if we're at war with Mara, if we're battling Mara, we'll always, you know, if that's all we're doing, we'll always be at war. If that's the frame we have. Now that wasn't the, that's not the wisdom of the myth, you know, it's intention and um, in the deepest way, it's really an encounter with energies that's done with tremendous presence and care. But I think the language is important because we actually do perceive it like we're struggling against something that's bad. That is one of the um, ways that we contract, like we're kind of at war with something bad in ourselves. One of the greatest truths that we always forget and I think we do forget the greatest truths but one of the greatest truths we always forget is, is, is that if we don't regard this life right here with love the self with love we can't be happy and we can't really love our world that the the path of heart classically begins with forgiveness and forgiveness begins with forgiving whatever we're holding against this being right here. So it's the place where we're most regularly blindsided. You know, I, I talk about trance a lot because we don't realize how we're turned against ourselves. You know, we move through the day and there might be a slight sense of of, you know, uneasiness or unpleasantness and we don't realize it's because in some way we're not liking how we are. And so what I've found is that really the key moment, and, and I watch, I mean, one of the big questions a lot of us have is what, what really causes change? What allows us really to heal or to wake up? 
the key moment in any mini healing process, our big healing process, is when there's a softening of the heart to ourselves. When something remembers, oh, wait a minute, be kind. It's a key moment. And it's amazing that we keep forgetting. Like I find for myself that I'll be, I'll be moving along in it when I remember, wait a minute, just gentler, gentler. It's like, how could I have forgotten what I do? So, this is the Buddha in, uh, this is from the Samyatta Nikaya, one of the Buddhist scriptures. The moment you see how important it is to love yourself, you'll stop making others suffer. So how do we understand that? In the moment that we really embrace this life right here, all sense of separation dissolves. If we really are loving the life that's here, our identity shifts, we open up. So, since I'm invoking the Buddha, I'd like to bring your attention to this lovely Buddha we have right here. I don't know how many of you have tuned into this Buddha here, but a little bit of a story behind it that I particularly want to share because Luisa's here. Um, Luisa and I had, had a job, and our job was to find a really beautiful Buddha for our Sangha here. It was a really great job. So we went, uh, we actually did it while we were up in Provincetown. And uh, uh, Louisa was visiting with my family up there. And we first we went out to a restaurant and had dinner and so on. And then we went and looked for our Buddha. And that's the Buddha we found. And we brought it back and put it, it was put it in the Wednesday night class on an altar there. And I noticed people would come to it and they'd look at it and I saw a group of people looking at it and they're kind of leaning like this as they were looking. And they brought me over, they, they waved me over and they said, Tara, um, this is a leaning Buddha. And can you see it? Yeah? It's a very imperfectly casted Buddha. And it became like beloved because it's almost like how cool can that be that we have this like imperfect Buddha here? And it really makes it easier because, you know, here it is. Like, every one of us, we're all casted by forces beyond our control, you know. It's just just casting, you know. And when we believe that the leaning facet, you know, the imperfect cover to our being is what we are, we're in trouble. Every one of us every one of us has these uh, conditionings, the same conditionings, to want to grasp and to be afraid and to push away and to pretend. We all, you know, protect. We all have those forces in us. So in Buddhist psychology, as many of you know, the uh, description uh, that the Buddha gave to how we get ourselves in trouble, he said, the first arrow, you know, this casting, these conditions that we all have is absolutely inevitable. Because every one of you, you know, we're all, our nervous system, we're all rigged with this uh, limbic system that is just geared for fight and flight. And it doesn't always look so good. So that's given, okay? 
The first arrow is a given, that's what he said. But he said, the second arrow is optional. We don't have to react and take personally uh, this conditioning. I've kind of translated it to leaning is a given, knocking ourselves over is optional. Does that make sense? That work? (laughs) So at the center of our psyche is often uh, these two personas of the judger and the judged. You know, the one that's shooting the second arrow and the one that feels hit by it. And if you examine your psyche, for most of us will find that holds together a sense of self. Like we spent a lot of time where there's some way that we're evaluating, evaluating with not such a positive slant how we're doing. And there's some place in us that's feeling that vulnerability of being evaluated. Judger and the judged. It's the linchpin of the self-identity. And sometimes it's very subtle. You know, we're all, we're all um, designed to feel a sense of separateness and sense of selfness. And with any sense of self, there's some feeling of vulnerable and not okay. And the more solid that gets, the more suffering there is. It's an amazingly powerful place to pay attention if we want to be free. And the more that we can notice and wake up from this sense of uh, something's wrong with me, evaluating it, the more uh, the self-sense becomes uh, more fluid, less solid, less centralized, the more freedom there is. So how we wake up, just explore that a bit. Um, Everything that we've been exploring over this weekend and that we'll continue to explore generally comes under the rubric of a mindful awareness with these two wings that we notice when it's happening the contracting, the judging or whatever it is and then there's a quality of kindness that we're allowing but with this real kind attention recognizing and allowing and so when it comes to our focus tonight, which is how this self-identity and suffering happens when we shoot the second arrow. When it comes to that, there's kind of a chain reaction and it's interesting to see where we catch ourselves on the chain. For instance, for many of us, we've got the less sticky second arrows. In other words, we know there's certain things that we know we don't like when we do, and if we can be alert when we do them, we can go, okay, okay, you know, drop it, it's okay, it's not such a big deal. But we get more, we get more um, clear about that. For instance, for myself, uh, when I make certain kinds of mistakes, it's forgivable as long as I catch it. If I don't catch that I'm kind of on my own case, it can build up like layers of gunk, you know, it just kind of gets stickier and stickier. So today, just to, just to come right into the present day, um, first mistake of the day that got me was uh, 
I took four sup I took four supplements of the wrong kind. So I ended and rather than taking four calciums, I took four magnesiums. Now I don't know if any of you know what magnesium does to you, but you're not supposed to take four times that amount. <laughs> I won't even talk about what it does to you, but it has to do with your gut, <laughs> you know. So anyway, I took four of those. So they're down already, and I'm sitting there going, you know how you go, I just can't believe I did it, did Well, I just kept on cycling through. I can't believe, but it's already down, you know. So finally, I went, wait a minute, okay, forgiven, forgiven. So I moved through the day, and then this afternoon when we were I'm doing the closing with the other group we had groups of four and each person was supposed to have a chance to share and but and after the third person I had thought we were all done so I did a clo- lovely closing little meditation and they're going wait a minute wait a minute and so again it was one of those pangs of oh god you know here I am teaching mindfulness and now that is not mindful you know okay let it go let it go so we have these areas where we, we catch ourselves. I have a friend that just visited, and his thing is that um, he brags, and then he really do, then he feels kind of slimy from it. So his one of his practices now is to notice when he's bragging, and you know either cut it out, but just but to forgive himself. So he caught himself with me, and it was great. He paused. He goes, "I just did it, didn't I?" You know, and and just to pause. So you might know for yourself, like you might have your list of not so sticky uh, second arrows where you, you know, you kind of get on your case, but you can drop it places where you're, you see that you're trying to impress somebody and you kind of leave the conversation and go, oh, I was kind of trying to, I was trying to make a, a real impression or places where you got a little defensive or where you got controlling. I love the story of uh, Postmaster General J. Edward Day, he, he reveals in his book an ingenious way to stop long-winded telephone callers. Day suggests you hang up while you are talking. The other party will think you're accidentally cut off because who would hang up on their own voice, you know? <laughs> so we, have our, we all have our little manipulations, don't we? <laughs> it's a good strategy. I've never tried it, but it's, I think it's kind of cool. So... We have our things. You know how Yogi Berra puts it? He says, I never blame myself when I'm not hitting. I just blame the bat. And if it keeps up, I change bats. After all, if I know it's not my fault that I'm not hitting, how can I get mad at myself? You know? So it's like, how easygoing are we with ourselves? But there's many, many areas where the uh, second arrow has to do with the basic sense of our identity, which is because I'm this way means I'm bad. So we have these places where we think we fall short, and it could be as a parent, or it could be, you know, as a intimate partner, or it could be as a friend, or it could be at work. It's usually work and love. But for many of us, we have some something that feels unforgivable about how we are, and sometimes it's in ways we relate to ourselves. And it might be that it's not the kind of unforgivable that we spend a lot of time thinking about. But for many, there's something left to forgive that until we've forgiven, there really is a way in which we're not able to be at ease in our world. 
so the inquiry then is in these larger areas, you know, how we, how we feel that we're falling short and how to begin to look at them. Mahatma Gandhi says, I have only three enemies. My favorite enemy, the one most easily influenced for the better, is the British Empire. My second enemy, the Indian people, far more difficult. But my most formidable opponent is a man named Mohandas G. Gandhi. Nope, Mohandas K. Gandhi. With him I seem to have very little influence. So when we get stuck, it's because we're living with a should, that I should be different. And, that, and it gets very, very, it's very deep, the sense of the way I am is not the way I should be. And I, and I want to bring your attention to the word should, because we have it. Other people should be different, we should be different. You know, Lily Tomlin says, I always knew I wanted to be somebody, but I guess I should have been more specific, you know. I remember one, one of the times I went to the Insight Meditation Society, I went into the front hall and there was a, a little sign up that said, self-knowledge is not necessarily good news. <laughs> and it's like that, that we aren't at home with how it is. There's this leaning Buddha and we can't help the casting, but we really think we should be different. One of my um, biggest wake-ups to the depth of that was not that long ago, um, about three or four years ago, I had been up at uh, Cape Cod and I'd been having increasing trouble with my knees and I couldn't run any longer, so I got the brilliant idea that I'd go speed walking instead. And so I went out for three mornings in a row speed walking on a slanted um, beach which I found out was like incredibly bad for one's knees and I I was pretty much crippled. I went home and I I couldn't walk. I couldn't go up and down my stairs, you know. I had to kind of crawl and it was pathetic. And so I spent about a week um, pretty sick because it triggered off a whole inflammation through my body and um, it was pretty miserable. And I, I remember at one point meditating and saying, you know, that inquiry of, you know, really, what's between me and being present? And of course there was the real unpleasantness in my body. But it got, but it, you know, I said, okay, unpleasant, unpleasant. But then I went, you know, then all of a sudden I heard a voice saying, I hate my life. And then I heard a voice saying, I hate myself. Now, in recent years, I haven't encountered that so much. And so I kept paying attention and it was this hate was towards this self, this sick self that was self-pitying and was um, impatient and irritable uh, with Jonathan and others. But mostly it was this self-pity and humorlessness and grimness that somehow or other this self had locked into. And then it hit me that I was miserable and I was hating myself for how I was handling it that um, I had this idea I should be handling it differently. Here I've done decades of spiritual practice and I'm still this self-pitying person that gets so grim. How I should be different. 
And it was when I recognized that core level of I should be different and how much it was uh, creating suffering that something in me really, you know, I, I started weeping. It's like this prayer of please may I be kind. What keeps us hooked is this idea that it should be different. And in some way we then punish ourselves. Now it's very difficult to begin to unravel that when we've injured other people. It seems like, yes, I should be different. It's not just an idea, I should be different. It's like we really believe our belief. So I want to explore with you because I find that so much of our self-forgiveness has to do with when we've caused injury to others, how that can be possible, okay? And I'd like to do it with an um, example of one, one man I worked with who had a session with and he hated his anger because his anger lashed out at people in ways that were injurious, um, at, his, at people he worked with and um, at home. It was the way he had really hurt his family. So his first challenge was to me, he said, I have like a violent beast in me. How can I forgive that? It's like, Mara is bad. And, how, and, and why should I forgive that? Okay? And so we started exploring because his belief was that if he forgave it, it would indulge that beast. In fact, that beast would be wildly out of control And so at one point I asked him, does hating the beast improve your behavior? And that got him, because he knew it didn't. But I think that it's an important thing, because when we think about forgiving, it's ourselves, I think that's what comes to mind, that in some way we'll never get better, you know, that we won't change anything, that we'll indulge, that we'll kind of go to sleep, that we won't see where we've hurt other people. So he came to retreat because he knew that his anger and his hatred of himself was keeping him in a really, in a bind. And his assignment really at retreat was to notice when he turned on himself. And he was in, this is several years ago, he was sitting in a meditation hall and his mind went right to the worst violation he felt he had done. And what it was, was um, a few weeks earlier, his wife had had a mammogram and there was a something suspicious so there was the needle biopsy and the results were supposed to be in by the end of the day so he comes home at the end of the day he walks in the front hall he sees a package that he had asked her to mail that had not been mailed she walks into the room the first thing he does is say so it wasn't important enough to you to mail the package when it mattered to me that's the first thing he said she of course broke down weeping and then he's, he went, you know, he's, so he's sitting in the hall remembering this and it was so overwhelming to him that he left the hall and he went back to his room and, and he was just sobbing. This is what he told me about and, and he said when he was sobbing, he was saying to her, I can't help it, I can't help it, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Then he had a memory of his father after his father had had a tantrum and thrown wine glasses and saying to his mother the same exact things, I can't help it, I can't help it. You know, when she, of course, she was threatening to leave in some way. But he had overheard that. 
And he realized that his father was at the mercy of the same demons he was at the mercy of and that neither of them could help it. So I said to him, you know, we sat with that a bit and I said, you know, it really isn't your fault. And I say that a lot. I say it to myself. I say it to other people. You know, I I see people that have or children of, of drug addicts or parents were violent in some way or parents were shut down or whatever the causes and conditions. The casting is the casting. We're leaning. It's not our fault. But what I talked to him about was that you can learn to respond differently. Not your fault doesn't mean not responsible, not able to respond. It just means it's not your fault. You're not a bad person. You didn't want it to be this way. We don't want it to be that way. I mean, none of us wants to shut down our hearts with our intimate partners and not be able to respond or wants to just unleash our criticism on a child or, you know, none of us wants to do the things that we blame ourselves for. So for him, the first step of healing was, it's not my fault. The second step, that kind of cleared the way. That, that removed that second arrow enough that he could start investigating his anger and find under it the feeling of being a very ashamed person that didn't feel important and didn't feel significant and, and, and that just created a rage when other people didn't pay attention in certain ways. He was able to start this process of forgiven forgiven. So those are the steps. It's not my fault. And then to really pay attention to the very behavior that we feel is so um, so reprehensible. There's a a metaphor that I I find kind of helpful on this, uh, which is to imagine that you're walking in the woods and you and you come upon a dog, this little dog that's sitting by a tree, and you reach down to pet the dog, and it all of a sudden, you know, lurches at you, bears its teeth, you know, and, and barks. And uh, at first you might feel frightened and angry, right? But then if you notice that one of its legs buried under these leaves is in a trap, and immediately your mood shifts, right? You go from anger to oh, oh, you know, from concern. You see that the dog's aggression was coming from, from vulnerability. It was coming from hurt. So this applies to all of us, that when we act in hurtful ways or unconscious ways, it's because our leg is in a trap. The more that we can look through the eyes of wisdom at ourselves and others and see that, the more that we begin the process of healing. Some friends of mine were um, teaching at a security prison and uh, teaching a meditation course. Uh, and one of the women in the course, a woman named Vanessa, over six feet tall, bright, dyed red hair and more tattoos than you can possibly count 
and known in her ward as a bully. And um, she protected some women and relentlessly uh, kind of intimidated, insulted others. And during the meditation uh, course, while others joined in for discussion, she would just kind of sit with her arms crossed and kind of scowl, okay? And the final class, eight weeks, there was kind of a go-round of, you know, what people noticed or discovered or experienced. She went last, and she said, well, what I really liked was the poem about the pirate. Now, what she was referring to, some of you might know them. I'm going to read it because I love this poem. This is uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. It's called Call Me By My True Names. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear pond, and I am also the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I'm the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I'm the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. Please call me by my true name so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open the door of compassion. So this woman said, uh, after she said that, that poem about the pirate, she says, well, that got me thinking. It made me know something. She said, and then she spoke so softly people could barely hear her. She said, all my life I was the bad one, the problem one. Now I know that I am suffering too. So I I mentioned that in the process of transformation, the key point is the softening. And what allows us to soften is the recognition uh, of, ouch, that this hurts. I mean, in a moment we can actually, without diluting it and saying, oh, other people hurt more than me, or oh, I deserve to hurt, it's the pure recognition of, oh, this hurts. This hurting. And it's not self-pity, it's just, it's like there's this something naturally that goes, that gets tender, right? And that is compassion. Compassion is this recognition of, ouch, you know? And then, and then this kind of a tenderness that, that just cares. There's a, um, there's a black spiritual that has a line that says, see beyond the fault to the need. See beyond the fault to the need. And, and I feel like that is really a critical part of wisdom. It's the same idea as the trap dog, okay? that if you can see beyond the presentation, the leaning to what's causing it, then you don't take it personally and you just have that, oh, okay, tender.
Maybe just a short reflection for a moment on that. Um, If you would like, just to um, take a moment to close your eyes. You might sense something that uh, you're aware of. If you scan, I sometimes do these forgiveness scans to myself. Somewhere that you might be holding against yourself for something something you're judging yourself for. And if you're not finding anything, then then yay, you can celebrate. That's your meditation. (laughs) But if, if you notice that there's something, some way that you're doing uh, things here or something you might feel like you did to somebody that was wrong or hurtful, might be some ongoing judgment that you hold of yourself. And when you, if you find something, sense the what you're judging, the behavior or the state of mind. Maybe you're judging yourself for being insecure or angry or anxious or whatever. But to see what you're judging. And then see if you can sense behind the fault, the unmet need that's there the way in some way you're in a trap, the vulnerability, the feeling of maybe that your life is uh, not fulfilling you, or the feeling of fear and needing to defend, feeling that if you give some, you'll be just sucked into something and lose your life, or Whatever the need or fear or vulnerability is, can you see behind the fault to that? And if you can, to just in some way offer kindness. Dana Fold says, forgive yourself, forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true being. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your stories of separation and failure. This is the day of your awakening. So opening your eyes if you'd like. So one of the um, pathways to self-forgiveness and self-compassion is to pause and sense, okay, um, it's not my fault. Can I look into what's really going on? Can I see behind the thing I'm blaming to the need, to the uh, hurt, to the vulnerability? 
Sometimes it's really hard to do that, and when I work with people, I find if I if I then just we just look at okay, what's it like to be blaming yourself? What if you investigate the experience of being on your own case, being at war? And often I'll I'll ask the question: How many moments is your body and mind living in this state? of dividedness, of not liking yourself. How many moments? How long has it been? Often what happens if we can really honestly recognize how many of our life moments, the proportion of our life moments in some way that we're at war with ourselves, not at home with ourselves. If we start getting that, that can give rise to compassion. It brings up what I sometimes call a soul sadness, where we see the kind of the shape of our incarnation and get it. These are moments that I could have been loving more freely. I could have been creative. I could have been um, relaxing. I could have served. But no, I was caught being on my own case. How much it binds our life energy. It's actually a useful thing to have that soul sadness when we start getting it. There was one woman that was in a group today that, sa- that has been to a few retreats and she said, this, is, this retreat, I got um, stopped in my tracks. She said, what I, I couldn't believe I had never seen before is how many moments my mind was judging, wall-to-wall judging. We don't see it. It's so much uh, a part of our identity. The Buddha says, your days pass like rainbows, like a flash of lightning, like a star at dawn. Your life is short. How can you quarrel? And it goes for quarreling with ourselves too. How can you quarrel? So it takes a commitment. What I've seen is that once people get uh, a sense of the suffering of being at war, there can be a real intention. You can leave this retreat with more of an awake and intentional kind of stance of, please, may I be kind. It's like Huxley, Aldous Huxley, one of my heroes, he died of throat cancer, and I remember the story of at the end of his life, he was asked, you know, what have you learned? And his message, he whispered it, he couldn't even speak, he said, be kinder. So one of the questions that comes up is, well, if we've hurt another, I mean, okay, so what does self-compassion do? And, and I want to go back to the way, where I started, where the Buddha said, if you could love yourself, you would stop hurting other people said in a more positive way, self-compassion unleashes our capacity to love others. It unleashes it. When we start softening that armor, there is just an amazing, total, full expression of of this heart. I've never seen self-compassion lead to anything but widening ripples. Now compassion, the very word compassion has to do with action. 
You know, it's like we're not. Ju- there's not just a kind of a softening. There's action. There's like a, an extending. There's a story that uh, I started sharing at retreats many years ago because I was so moved by it that I um, like to share with you tonight about this. That you know, when we've caused injury. Um, how the first step is really letting go of our own guilt. It's not my fault, not blaming ourselves. So in other words, we can't make amends to other people out of guilt. That does not... We can go ahead and do the outside in, and it's not like it won't be helpful. It's, it's skillful in its own way. But the deepest transformation and healing is if we've truly brought self-compassion to our own hearts, then there's this very pure caring that we then make amends. And by the way, making amends is incredibly appropriate and powerful. And there are many faiths. I, I think of the Jewish faith, that there's the, the instructions of, you know, when you see you've caused harm, reach out, make a difference. There's a, um, yeah, let's see if I have it still. Yeah, let me share this with you. Um, highly esteemed, Uh, Hasidic rabbi of the most renowned Jewish community in Poland, this is 1800s, needed to travel by train to a distant town. Being a modest man and not wanting to call attention to himself, he dressed in the attire of most peasants. A man of some means, slightly drunk and arrogant, sat down beside the rabbi and not knowing who he was, was rude, insulting and abusive to him most of the trip. When they arrived at their destination, there was a huge following to welcome the rabbi and the man immediately realized what he'd done and he was mortified. So he falls to his knees and he pleads the rabbi's forgiveness and the rabbi gently offered his hand and invited him to rise. But he said, it's not for me that you need to seek forgiveness. It was not the chief rabbi to whom you were rude. You need to go find some peasant who seems to be poor and uncultured and ignorant. It is from him that you need to beg forgiveness. So there's a, a beauty to asking for forgiveness when it's when, but when we first have come to that place in our own in our own being and it comes out of that. So it's from that understanding I share this is uh, a reading from the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Collection. Their offerings at the wall is the name of the book. And uh, in this reading, the the man writes, "This is a letter, dear sir. For 22 years, I've carried your picture in my wallet." I was only 18 years old that day we faced each other on the trail in Chu Lai, Vietnam. Why you didn't take my life, I'll never know. You stared at me so long, armed with your AK-47, and yet you didn't fire. Forgive me for taking your life. I was reacting just the way I was trained, to kill VC. So many times, that's Viet Cong. So many times over the years I stared at your picture and your daughter, I suspect each time my heart and guts would burn with the pain of guilt. I have two daughters of my own now. I perceive you as a brave soldier defending his homeland. Above all else, I can now respect the importance life held for you. I suppose that is why I'm able to be here today. It is time for me to continue the life process and release the pain and guilt. Forgive me, sir. So 
I shared that for for many years uh, when I was teaching, and then a couple of years ago, somebody said, "That's not the end of the story." <laughs> and then I found out the rest of the story. So this man, uh, his name's uh, Richard Luttrell, had written this letter and he left it at the Vietnam Memorial, which people did, um, along with the photograph. But somehow or other it got into the book and the book and letter got back to him. It's like he'd wanted to get rid of it and he couldn't. It just came back to him. So he ended up deciding he wanted to go to Vietnam to meet the daughter in the picture. And he did. He found his way to Vietnam and found his way to her and they had a meeting and so there's an interpreter that was at the meeting and I, I'll just read you a little bit of it. He introduced himself and he said to her and he said, tell her this is the photo I took from her father's wallet the day I shot and killed him and then I'm returning it. So he said that and then he kind of, his voice broke up and then he asked for her forgiveness. And then the woman, her name's Lon, burst into tears and fell into his arms and they just held each other sobbing. When she settled down, the interpreter again said, um, both, both she and her brother believe their father's spirit lives on in you. They expect that you'll think it's just superstition and perhaps they say it is, but for them today is the day their father's spirit has come back to them. So there's a way of understanding that when we finally get it to let go of the guilt, to, to hold our own being with compassion, there is a natural expression to reach out and touch others. And if it turns out, we, and if it's, there's been harm to another, it's, we care. We care. The, the sila, the virtuous action, will come out of that self-compassion. It's about remembering love. You know, that pivotal moment in all healing is, is the moment that something in us reawakens up to who we are, to the loving presence. It is who we are. And we remember to offer to the places in ourselves and each other where it's needed. And even remembering our intention. If we leave this retreat with, with just more conscious intention to soften towards ourselves, our life will unfold with more freedom, just more intention. And to help each other in it. It's one of the most beautiful parts of Sangha, our community, is that when someone else is caught up in their identity as a leaning Buddha, and they're caught up in the leaning part, and we remind them of the Buddha part, it's like that is the freedom that happens, that we have a shift in identity. Rumi, come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, worshiper, lover of leaving, it doesn't matter. Ours is not a caravan of despair. Come, even if you have broken your vow a hundred times, come, come again, come. It's okay that we're imperfect. It's really okay. It's kind of like um, Sri Nirsargadatta. He says it so wonderfully that upon realization, he says you can't really describe it, you can't put it in any words except for there's a profound realization, nothing is really wrong with me. What?
what what if that truly was where we were living? Nothing is really wrong with me. The third Zen patriarch, you know, that we're without anxiety about imperfection. Every one of us is here leaning. You know, we might not be leaning so obviously, but we're leaning. You know, we've got these imperfections. So what? So there's a, there's a deep habit to add the second arrow, to have our identity solidify around the sense that something is wrong. It's very, very deep in us, which is why I um, speak about it a lot and dedicated. Tonight's talk is dedicated to the leaning Buddha. It's dedicated to, to every, all the parts of us that the, the inner expressions of Mara that in the Tibetan tradition are described differently. It's uh, not as a, in contrast to the enemy. As the deities, they're just different deities, wrathful deity and jealous deity and possessive deity. And that our entry into sacred space is by encountering the deities. It's like that is how we wake up. We just encounter the leaning qualities in us. And if we can remember love, then the radiance, the, the luminosity of what we are is free to shine. So we'll just close with a, a, a brief reflection uh, on this. And in this pause, just feel the sincerity of your own heart towards freedom, towards being really truly who you are, realizing that. And your own intention to untangle the, the armoring freedom from the second arrow in whatever way it expresses subtle or overt when Sri Narsargadatta says to make love of yourself perfect he says all I plead with you is this make love of yourself perfect he's not talking about loving the separate self he's talking about loving the life that's here which leads us into loving all life What would it mean right now to make love of this life, this aliveness, with all of its expressions perfect, unconditional? We begin by just sensing where there's knots, where there's uh, not okay feelings. And I sometimes just use the word forgiven, forgiven. Not as if something's wrong and it's being forgiven, but just this gentle offering of letting go of any blame, releasing it, forgiven, forgiven. Nothing's wrong. Just taking a few moments in the quietness to sense if there's any places asking for forgiveness or acceptance. Just offering the light of your own heart and kindness.
Who would you be if there was no aversive judge, no judged? If truly there was the experience of nothing is wrong? that you hold the imperfections with kindness. You discover the vastness and warmth of your Buddha heart. The talk you just listened to has been freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation, learn more about my schedule, or about programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit either my website, which is tarabrock.com, or IMCW site, which is imcw.org. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.